This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks very much for tuning in. Should police officers be required to live in the cities where they serve? That is a question that has sparked a lot of controversy for a really long time. And at least here in Michigan, it was put to rest by a 1999 state law that banned residency requirements for police officers and other municipal workers. 20 years later, just 23% of Detroit police officers actually live inside the city of Detroit, according to the Detroit Police Department. Crane's Detroit business reporters Chad Livengood and Annalise Frank took a close look at those numbers and heard a number of perspectives on the issue as part of Crane's forum. I'm happy to welcome Chad Livengood and Annalise Frank to Detroit Today. Chad and Annalise, thanks for joining us. Good to be here. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to start here, Chad. Uh, talk about the history of this issue. This is something that we have been arguing about for a really long time, especially in the city of Detroit. Um, <laughs> residency issues for Detroit police officers, residency requirements rather, for officers and firefighters and municipal employees dates back to 1968 at the time the Detroit Common Council uh, imposed a, an ordinance uh, requiring this, and it started going into collective bargaining agreements. Um, a couple years later, the Detroit Police Officers uh, Association, um, they went to court and took this all the way to the Supreme Court trying to challenge the residency requirement, which was basically kind of a response to both what we what what came out of the 1967 uh, rebellion and 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 the criticism that this police department was almost entirely white, and and they needed uh, diversity of the police department, and so one of the, one of the of the solutions that was come up that what the people came up with what at the time was to require police officers to to live in the city and be residents of the of the city, pay taxes, uh, and live among the people that that they. Um, serve and protect. And this was a, uh, a public policy initiative that, that kind of spread across the country in the late 60s and early 70s uh, and became very prevalent um, as a way to both um, uh, com combat white flight, uh, but also uh, try to diversify the police departments. And over time, it, it did do that. Um, it, it did uh, at least um, diversify the police department, uh, but it was the police police unions basically and firefighter unions challenged this year in year out and and went to war with uh, in the legislature for almost two decades uh, before they finally got. Um, uh, the Republican legislature at the time, 1999, and Republican governor, uh, John Engler, to sign a law uh, prohibiting these uh, ordinances or con our contract um, uh, requirements uh, and, and lift, essentially lifting all uh, uh, police uh, residency requirements that were in place, not in Detroit, but a, a lot of cities around the state. I think there was more than 20 at the time. Mm. So uh, Annalise Frank... Fast forward to today and your reporting on this issue. What are we looking at when we look at the city of Detroit's police force, for instance, where where people live and where they do not? Yeah, so so, you know, right now um, and we have some, you know, some data included in our story. So, um, you know, 23 percent of Detroit's, you know, 2000, nearly 2500 police officers reside within the city. Um, so that 
breaks out to, you know, the, the police department is a majority black organization, you know, 54% of officers are, are black. And then um, among black officers, 62% live outside the city, um, whereas um, white officers um, reside, or sorry, 3% of white officers reside in Detroit. Um, so, so there's a, there's a difference there. And, uh, so there's, uh, you know, for, for years there's been discussions about, about, you know, the idea of bringing this residency requirement back. Obviously that is not a decision that could be made at the city level right now that would have to be changed at the state level. But, um, there's certainly a lot of, you know, discussions as to, as to what could happen. And I, I spoke with, um, city council president pro tem Mary Sheffield, who had, said that you know she 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 wants to see a residency requirement return and would be going as far as to you know inquire with city council what they could do which you know likely would be putting forth a resolution to urge the state to look at this again which you know would be a sort of an advocacy move it it wouldn't be changing anything on the ground but there's yeah certainly interest in 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 some lobbying toward getting this changed yeah so and at least the reporting showed a difference between white officers and black officers in the city of Detroit in terms of where they, they live. This is, of course, an issue that is really heavy with racial dynamic in the city of Detroit, which is 80 percent black. But talk about the differences that you guys found between white officers and where they live and black officers and where they live. Actually, there, I think we just lost. I think we just lost Annalise. We'll get her back on the line. But Chad Livengood, uh, why don't you go ahead and, and address that? Yeah, I mean, there just are so few white officers who live in the city. Um, it's three percent. It it amounts to twenty nine of the nine hundred eighty two white officers actually reside in the city of Detroit. Um, and I mean, it's just a it's a stunning um, amount, uh, just uh, of how many do not live in Detroit. Whereas 20 years ago, they were all required to live uh, in the city. Uh, although uh, we should also know some of the history of that. Stephen um, is this residency requirement uh, really from the late 80s all the way till the passage of the law and signing into law on New Year's Eve of 1999, um, there was an increasing problem of police officers uh, just flouting the requirements and and moving out to the suburbs, maintaining a second address in the city just to basically keep up appearances. Uh, uh, um, Warren Evans, the county executive, uh, former county sheriff, one-time Detroit Police Department uh, chief, he recounted uh, there was a, a trailer park off of Jefferson on the east side uh, that was notorious for uh, being the, the uh, home address of hundreds of Detroit police officers. Um, and there were other types of, of things like that went on where, where their police officers' families would move out to the suburbs uh, and they would uh, they would maintain an address. But and at the same time, the depart the um, uh, the police department internal affairs uh, back in the 90s, they had um, a, a couple dozen people uh, whose job was, it was to police the police officers residency uh, and basically investigate cops who were or who were putting up uh, sort of scam houses as their address uh, in order to live where they wanted to. And and so that was one of the big arguments to get rid of this was that it was just basically being uh, ignored and and not uh, anywhere near followed. 
and it was costing a lot of money to basically police the issue. Hmm. Uh, We've got Annalise Frank back with us, uh, and and I want to ask you, Annalise, so we've got this situation where most officers are not living in the city, and you've got this racial divide at a time when people are really talking about and thinking about the racial dynamics as it pertains to policing in the city and the racial dynamics of the relationship between the police and the community in Detroit. Uh, but in your story, we, we have James Craig, who is the police chief here in Detroit, not really sort of rising to the to the call here that this is a major issue. I mean, he's, he's saying that they're they're working on ways to get more officers to live in Detroit, um, but he doesn't seem to think that this is this is a major issue with the way that police interact with people in the city. Yeah, exactly. Um, he he did not. Um, he said he would not be in favor of um, reinstating that requirement. You know, we talked to several people who said they would be in favor of it, but it's just not realistic. It's not, you know, just not going to happen. So we need to work around it. But he, you know, even if, even if it could be reinstated in Detroit, he you know, said he would be against that. And, and, you know, basically he had a couple of arguments there. One was kind of a, you know, the idea that it would limit recruiting efforts, um, which is, which is a pretty common argument. Um, but, but that's more of a practical argument as opposed to, you know, the, 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 the moralistic arguments there. And for those, you know, he says he you know, he was a, a, a police officer in Detroit when there was a requirement, mm-hmm. you know, and um, he he basically says that he feels that DPD does better with building relationships with community now than it did then. And he uses that as sort of an anecdotal argument, um, you know, that isn't based on data. You know, he, he says that's based on his experience. Um, but he you know, he also says these officers you know, regardless of where they live, uh, they lay down their lives um, in the city um, and that, uh, you know, basically he is about, you know, training whoever it is, you know, whether they live in Detroit, whether they live in Warren, whether they live, you know, an hour outside the city, it's about training them once they get there. Mm-hmm. And that's that's certainly counter what to what, you know, some activists would, would say, which is that, um, you know, if you if you're firmly rooted in a community, you see it more like, uh, you know, a, a, a friendly place to be as opposed to, you know, kind of a, you know, the uh, one of the phrases used by someone I talked to, Eric Williams, with the Detroit Justice Center was like a, you know, a foreign battlefield where danger could be around every corner. So those are kind of the opposing sides there. I'm talking with Annalise Frank and Chad Livengood of Crane's Detroit Business about where Detroit cops actually live and where they should live. Should residency be one of the things that we require of police officers, not just in the city of Detroit, but everywhere, in order to serve in the communities where they do? Uh, It's a question with real power right now, given the conversation that we're having about policing nationwide and policing in the city of Detroit. Would some of the problems that we see between police and the community be different or be better if more of those officers actually lived in the city of Detroit. We want to hear from you about this issue. Do you think police officers should be required to live in the community they serve? Why or why not? We especially love to hear from you if you're an officer or if you work in public safety. How do you think police can understand and reflect the communities 
that they swear to protect if they don't live in those communities. As always here, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You also can uh, get at us on Facebook and on Twitter, and we will try to work you into the conversation. We've got some Twitter comments I want to read before we get to the phones. Fred on Twitter says, ideally, yes, officers should live in the communities they serve, but I'm afraid might cause a shortage, a nod there to the recruitment issue that might arise if residency were one of the requirements for Detroit police. It is very difficult, by the way, to get people to sign up to say they want to be police officers in in the city of Detroit for any number of reasons. This would maybe be another reason for people to take a pass. Uh, Jeffrey on Twitter says, either you mandate all public servants, police, fire, teachers, etc., live where they work, or you don't. You can't just say police because of how bad the reputation is. That's a really interesting uh, context to put that in as well. Are there other public servants that should be uh, required to live in the cities where they serve? Orlando on Twitter says, we have to unpack the fact that more than half of our officers live outside the city of Detroit. How do you connect police, protect, and serve a community that you don't live in? Is there a difference when the constituency are your neighbors. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Carol in Detroit. Carol, welcome to the show. Good morning. Hi. Um, my, my thoughts or questions are if, if a police officer has a spouse or partner um, and they've compromised on a city to live in between where they both work, or if they're living in an area specifically to help an elderly parent or something like that, how how do you resolve that? Yeah, that's an interesting question, Carol. And I think that's one of the arguments that we hear from officers about residency requirements is that sometimes they aren't the sole decision makers in their families. They aren't the only people whose needs have to be taken into account. And maybe there are there are reasons that are about somebody else that make them want to live outside the city. Chad Livengood, did you hear that kind of explanation from police officers? Yeah, certainly. Uh, one of the officers I talked to talked about an example of there was an officer from Detroit who got married to an officer in Southfield. Both cities had residency requirements, and one of them had to quit their job in order for the couple to move in to, to with each other uh, because uh, even though they're neighboring cities, uh, they, they both had uh, dif- different residency requirements. So they're, they're, these are these are conflicts that uh, yeah were part of the argument against it uh, and and I, I talked to a, a, a guy who was the uh, police psychologist uh, for the uh, D- DPOA and um, and and he said that um, that you know this this requirement broke up marriages. I mean he consoled many uh, many officers in the 80s and 90s who had all kinds of of family issues as a result of the sort of split up or as they're trying to get you know. Um, education and you know Stephen in reporting this we didn't get into this in the article but this this story really kind of reinforced to me yet another 
um, reason why uh, education is everything, and and creating better schools uh, in Detroit uh, is is the is the key to everything. Um, and this is just a, a great example. I mean, when you have sixty two percent of black officers in Detroit living in the suburbs, uh, that's probably not by accident. Mm. Uh, and and many of them we know just like uh, you know what we've seen in all the trend lines is. Black middle class moved out to the suburbs uh, to get better schools and education for their children, and and this this uh, this reflects that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about policing and communities. We'll keep Annalise Frank and Chad Chad Livingood of Cranes Detroit Business, and we will get to more of your comments. John on the East Side, Billy in Gross Point Park, Courtney in Detroit, and Rich in Detroit. We'll hear from you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll try to work you in. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Your city. Your town. Your voice. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, Thanks very much for tuning in. My guests are Annalise Frank and Chad Livengood of Cranes Detroit Business. Uh, they work together on a project, a series of stories, really, a series of issues about uh, policing in the city of Detroit. Where do police officers live? Should they live in the communities that they police? Or is it okay for them to protect and serve uh, during their shifts in places like Detroit and then Go home to other communities. We want to hear from you as well about what you think about residency requirements and the idea of police forces being made up of people from the community. Uh, as always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and uh, we'll work on uh, trying to get you into the conversation. Deborah on Facebook has a really interesting comment. She says, I think the problem isn't black officers that live outside of the city. No matter where they live, we're still connected enough that I see and can expect a certain perspective that somewhat filters out racist bias. My problem, she says, is with white officers coming from mostly white enclaves and sundown towns that surround Detroit like barbed wire Hours. Uh, that that racial context, again, is a really powerful part of, of this conversation. And I think there's a lot of people in the city of Detroit who have that concern and would be more forgiving of black police officers who live outside the city uh, than than white police officers. In the least, Frank, uh, I wonder if, if any of your reporting detected that distinction. Definitely, uh, Stephen. Yeah, there. Um yeah, there was there was a lot of discussion as well as about the uh, residency requirement about 
um, having a police force where, you know, the the demographics reflect the, the community that they're serving. So, yeah, so that that would be, you know, a, a black officer who lives outside the city. Um, you know, um, I think that would be more ideal. And, and you know, there there was a, a, a study in, in, in 2014 on a you know, separate news site called 538 where they looked um, you know, at, at, poli- at police residency requirements in terms of, you know, which cities had um, demographics that more closely matched the city they were in and whether police residency requirements caused cities to you know, have more more closely related demographics or, or you know, wh- whether those two are correlated, basically. Mm-hmm. And they found that they, they really weren't. Some cities with police residency requirements um, had still kind of a vast difference between the, the racial makeup of their police force and their um, and their their city. So um, and obviously in, in Detroit, it's it's it's, you know, Detroit's police force is, is majority black, but it's it's, uh, you know, about. Um, what six? Sorry, I don't have the 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 number right up here. But 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 Detroit is an eighty percent black city, so it's not you know it's it's not it's not reflective exactly. Mm. And yeah, that's definitely a concern. Yeah. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number on the phones. Let's go to Courtney in Detroit. Courtney, welcome to the Hi. show. Hi, Stephen. Hi. Um, I have a question mostly about the taxes because having city services workers that includes the police but also things like the uh, Detroit lighting department is now like a private company and things like that they get paid from city taxes but their taxes go to the city they reside in mostly Hmm. that doesn't help the city that doesn't help us very much and as a sort of secondary thing um, one of your guests mentioned that folks were breaking up and marriages were being ruined because sometimes you would have to move in order to fulfill the requirements for residency that's not unusual in any other job and particularly in the military you cannot marry or date in your chain of command and that has caused quite a few times where people have to make decisions about what their you know future career is going to be Mm. or have to move base or something like that it happens it's not probably enough of a thing that it should be weighed really heavily in this kind of conversation i think Mm. Uh, Courtney, I really appreciate the call and the thoughts. Uh, Chad, I to respond to the tax issue here, which I, I hear people raise that from time to time, that, that essentially people in one city are paying uh, through their taxes for uh, people who then take that money and, and invest it in other communities. Is that, a, is that one of the, the issues here that people are, are really focused on? It's not a top issue, but um, just to be clear, um, a police officer who lives in the suburbs who works in Detroit still pays the non-residency income tax rate of 1.2% versus a residency uh, tax of 2.4%. So – so it, it, they're not, um, they're not, you know, they're still paying taxes to the city of Detroit, just not as much. Obviously, it's half uh, as what it was before, and and so yeah, that that's that was If you go back to the bankruptcy um, uh, when there was um, still ten thousand 
employees. They they talked about in the 1990s there was 18,000 uh, municipal employees, and all those municipal employees lived in the city. Um, and we just took the, looked at the police department of 2,500. But I think if you looked at fire department and and all other um, um, municipal departments, you would probably find. Um, a minority of, 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 of city workers actually live in the city still um, as a result of, of this 1999 law. One thing I wanted to bring up, um, uh, uh, one was the data point that Annalise was, was talking about, 54% of the police department is is black and in a, in a city of 80% black. And so there is quite a gap still uh, and our police department still is not, you know, a true reflection of of the uh, of the population. Secondly, uh, something that really struck me in sort of the researching of the story, there was a 1971 Supreme Court decision that upheld the residency requirement brought by the uh, lawsuit brought by the Detroit Police Officers Association Union mm-hmm. um, over uh, they they made an equal protection uh, um, argument uh, on the 14th Amendment and the the um, the uh, one of the concurrences from Justice Thomas Brennan at the time just struck me as wow this could have been written yesterday. Um, he wrote one of the most sensitive problems in law enforcement today is the relationship between the police and the black community. Hmm. The Common Council of Detroit has made a difficult legislative judgment weighing the desirability of having a resident police force on the streets against the detriment of losing many experienced, dedicated, and courageous officers who choose to live in the suburbs. And I read that. I, I couldn't believe that, that that literally could have been written yesterday, just sure. given the current environment we have. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's go back to listeners here. Um, looking for this comment here. Uh, Cecil in Royal Oak has a really interesting question about the performance here. In other words, is there anything that suggests that there are better performance records for police officers who live in a community versus police officers who live outside of a community. Uh, Annalise Frank, I wonder if you might be able to address that. You know, Stephen, I think a, a big problem in reporting this was the lack of data on this, especially recent data. Hmm. So, no, we I, I did not see, I mean, national, let alone Detroit-specific data that, that, uh, that, uh, makes that clear um i would be very interested to to look into that more yeah. um, and i mean that's, I, I think there yeah, Go yeah ahead, that's sorry. one of the that's one of the issues with, that people are talking about right now in terms of reforming policing is keeping better data of what happens when they go out on shift and and interact with the with the community but that's an interesting question i mean it would be it would be an interesting data point to add to this discussion to show whether it really makes a difference whether police officers are living uh, in a community or not. Let's go to John right. on the east side. John, Thanks a lot. And you guys have hit a lot of the things I started to call about, especially you, Chad, in the Jeff Chalmers area. I moved south of Jefferson in the 80s, and, and there were so many cops' houses down here. It was incredible, but you <laughs> never saw them except for when they came fishing. So. Mm. So when we started doing infill housing down here, we looked at some programs. We built a 45-unit scattered site uh, infill housing project, and we looked at how we could use financial incentives to have uh, city workers move into the houses, specifically police officers. And and forcing people to do things doesn't generally work out well. But perhaps financial 
incentives. We'll try and, and incentivize other, it as um, a yeah, bonuses that's... in pay or uh, reduced property taxes or something along those lines. I think would be far more effective. So, so John, before I get Annalise and Chad to address that, I wonder if you can talk about how that worked out in Jeff Chalmers. Did, we we didn't do it. We you didn't do we, it. we looked at it from urban studies across the United States as how infill housing processes were working and such and but we we didn't we weren't able to implement it in our first project and mm. the first project ended up to be the, the last project so yeah. far. So <laughs> but I, I think that's worth looking at. Yeah. As no, a city. I, I agree. The, the the idea of incentives is is an interesting idea and a different approach. Chad Livingood uh, respond to that. Yeah, this has been talked about. I mean, there's been a couple different initiatives over the years. Um, right now, currently, um, the land bank will give any police officer, firefighter, or teacher um, a 50% discount on any land bank home uh, at auction. So you can buy a pretty cheap house uh, um, uh, to, as an incentive to live in Detroit. Um, there have uh, Governor Whitmer, when she announced kind of a series of, of police reforms uh, last month, one of the one of the bullet points was create some type of incentives to encourage more residency. She has not outlined what exactly that would look like. Um, Representative Sherry Gay-Dagnogo, a Democrat from Detroit, has uh, some draft legislation to create a $5,000 income tax deduction Mm. uh, for police officers, state-certified teachers, and firefighters. So there are these types of of tax tax incentives that have been bandied about and and that there is some seemingly some momentum for that whether that's enough to encourage someone to make all the decisions in every situation as we talked about earlier Stephen, is different when you have uh, spouses and children and and uh, elderly parents and 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 other family considerations to make uh, and also just the recruitment pool i mean that's that's another thing they just have to kind of think about Prior to COVID-19, we had a very, very tough type job market mm-hmm. uh, where a lot of specific skills could not be filled. Um, and one thing that Warren Evans said to me that, I, that struck me as different is is also the opportunities for African-American men has changed. Um, there are more educational opportunities. There are opportunities to do other types of jobs. And 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 and, and, and some of the uh, appeal of policing has, has not what it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, part That's partly a, rec- uh, a reflection of the, um, the environment we're living in. Um, and if I could just add quickly, sure, um, some just kind of a, I think, a important, specific, different kind of skepticism over uh, residency requirements is, you know, the idea of um, legislative change focusing on, you know, these kind of piecemeal issues. Um, and, and again, these are arguments brought up by Eric Williams at the Detroit Justice Center, who we spoke with and who wrote an op-ed for this series or this this report. Um, you know, the bias training, residency requirements, um, other kind of small measures that, that could require more investment in, in police departments, tax incentives, these kind of things. Um, that maybe those can help, but, but, but they're, you know, these are focusing on rooting out specific problem officers, as opposed to overhauling a system that many see as problematic, yeah. uh, you know, systemic racial issues, police culture. So can we can we do something more overarching than take this piecemeal approach? Yeah, yeah. Okay, Chad Livengood and Annalise Frank, 
Really great to have you here. Thank you both for coming by. Thanks very much. Thank you. That's going to do it for us today. I will be back tomorrow for a conversation about how fascism works with author Jason Stanley. We'll get into his book and the role that fascism is playing here in America in relation to the current state of civil unrest and political division across the country. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk more tomorrow.